It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. You guys are probably wondering why there was not a brand new show last week. And I've got the answer for you. But first, let me tell you, this is Brian Preston. I'm your host of The Money Guy Show. You can go check out our website. It's money-guy.com. But I want to jump right in and tell you about today's show topic and what happened to me last week. I got the phone call that nobody in my industry ever wants to receive. And that phone call was that the SEC... That's the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's not the Southeastern Conference if you're a college fan. The Securities and Exchange Commission was going to come by to introduce themselves to us, to do um, not really a spot check, but more of just an interview session. And as you can imagine, that scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. Not because we have anything to hide. It's just because my philosophy is there's two organizations that you have to worry about. If you don't pay your power bill, Sure, they're eventually going to come off your, cut off your power, but there's um, a pretty good period before that happens, and then you can always just pay your bill, and um, they'll turn the power back on. Or if you don't pay the phone bill, you can use your cell phone or something like that. But if you ever cross the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Internal Revenue Service, if they don't like what you've done, they'll just shut you down. And that's the thing that, um, you know, even though, we, like I said, we have nothing to hide here, it's still something that shakes you to your bone when you get a call that the Securities and Exchange Commission wants to come by and visit with you. So that actually, that visit occurred this morning, um, and, it, and it actually went very well. I've been surprised. I've done my, my tour of government agencies this year, because um, about two months ago, as y'all heard me talk about on um, the, the radio show, I actually had my first client, I've been doing tax returns for quite a while, for a small number of clients, and I had my very first business IRS audit, meaning that a business return that I've helped com- prepare was audited by the IRS earlier this year. And I was, you know, scared to death about that as well, um, even though I really had no exposure because I'm just the preparer. It was not my actual return. It was one of my clients. But it's still something that you want to do a good job for them. And we came through that with flying colors, and I actually – came out of it feeling that, that the IRS was not the big, bad boogeyman that I think a lot of us are, that the, the, the auditors that came out were very nice people. It was the same thing with the Securities and Exchange Commission this morning. It went very well. They were very nice. Um, you know, I think they're just trying to make sure that you're doing everything you can to, to protect the, the, the clients and the public's best interest. So that's done. But as a result of that, you did not get a show Last week, you got a rerun if you listened to us on Business Radio 1160, or you just didn't get a new update out there on iTunes if you download us from the internet out there in a worldwide audience. So we got a brand new show today. Uh, But I got to tell you, this is kind of like the the financial leftovers show, because you remember how growing up when, um, you know, either your mother or father cooked a meal on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, and then Thursday you cleaned out the fridge. You, and you really had a leftover Thursday where, you know, you'd open up the fridge and whatever casserole or soup or whatever was prepared earlier in the week is now what you were going to eat. Well, I've got the exact same type of show today. Um, I didn't write out full show notes. I went and pulled up a lot, you know, pulled in data from all over the place to, um, to give you some, show, some, some topics to discuss. And the first one, we are in the process of, of completing 
the fourth quarter wealth report that we're going to send out to, to all of our subscribers in, in the next you know few weeks. But we've compiled about half of it. And the first article that you're going to see on the cover of the wealth report for this quarter is putting the summer stock sell-off in perspective. Because we had the market just take a big jump for us, and it really started in February. Back in February of 2007, just rewinding a little bit and taking you guys back, y'all can remember we had all that that kind of that, that quasi meltdown over in China, and that caused our market to to plunge about 400 points right there in February. And then we had a few jolts that occurred back in July and August, as investors worried about really the subprime mortgages and um, how that was going to affect banks, lending institutions, and then the credit crunch that, that followed that. And then we really got our wake-up call to know that this was a serious situation when the Federal Reserve came out and was compelled to ease interest rates on, on discount rates and other things, you know, to show that they were serious about this, that their gears had completely changed where they were talking about raising interest rates because they were concerned about the, the impact of inflation. And then all of a sudden we get a big adjustment where now the Federal Reserve is cutting interest rates. That's a big policy change from what we were dealing with. And it kind of um, had to make you think about what was going on with this summer stock sell-off that occurred for us. And, um, there's several theories about what happened. The first is, is that we were just simply overdue for a correction. You know, listen to some of the things that have actually been going on. And meanwhile, the stock market was just, you know, whistling and, and, and still going up in value. It's like we were oblivious to some of these things that were going on. Oil prices have been soaring. Uh, you know, it was just a, a few days ago that I saw that oil reached $89 a barrel, which is unheard of. We're not too far from that $100 a barrel that, that you know, we've always been talking about and has been the big threat out there. Uh, it really could happen very shortly. We've also seen there's been some military setbacks in Iraq. You know, there's been some things there that, that, that obviously impact, you know, the, the, how things feel economically as well as politically out there in the financial marketplace. And then even though all this stuff was going on, you still saw the Dow as well as the Standard & Poor's, the S&P 500 stock indexes, hit brand new highs. And it's been a pretty smooth ride, if you think about it, too. From May of 2003 all the way through January 2007, the Dow Jones never dropped more than 2% in one day. And that's unheard of to have... That lack of volatility for such a long period of time. So there is a, a school of thought out there that we were just due for a correction. But we also had some other variables that were impacting us as well. There was um, the sudden credit crunch that occurred as well. Because what happened there, just recapping and bringing you back up to speed, is that there was a lot of lenders out there that were being very easy with their lending requirements. And they were offering poorly qualified home buyers the opportunity to buy into houses they really couldn't afford through products that were you know, called subprime mortgages. And a lot of those mortgages were packaged, packaged in complex, you know, illiquid type securities that were bought by hedge funds as well as other institutional um, investors. And those are the guys that have carried much of these losses because these securities are rarely traded. And, and 
and they're buried into portfolios. So you really, we don't know at the biggest financial institutions, we still don't know the total impact that this credit crunch is going to have on the financial marketplace. And also, many of those um, companies that owned the, these these subprime loans that has impacted their financial statements were were anticipating that lenders would be able to keep turning the faucet of additional money on, and that stopped. Lenders, because they got so nervous about things, just quit lending money because they were so worried about widespread defaults that they just shut off the spigot of new money. So they were not lending money to anybody, hardly. And and that's the part where the credit crunch really kicked in, because then you had these people that were counting on they could just, if they needed more money, heck, we'll just go borrow more money. It's no problem, because money's free right now, and interest rates are, you know, at good rates. We'll just go borrow the money because we can get a better rate of return out there in the marketplace. Well, then they cut off that flow of free debt. And yet, these these individuals who had gone out and run up, um, you know, and had these subprime loans in their in their portfolios and so forth, still had to pay the loans or default. So what they did was to cover, so, so they wouldn't have to default. A lot of them had to sell some of their equity holdings, even though this was a debt issue. It was not uncommon to see that a lot of these holders had to go sell their equities to cover these debt problems with this credit crunch. And that when they sold, there's that sell-off of equity, even though everything on the equity side was not right there driven specifically by the subprime and should not have touched it, you had people who, because they had to pay their bills of these loans, were selling their equities pretty quick. And then, as I mentioned, August 17th, the Federal Reserve came out and they cut the discount rate by a full half a percentage point, which was shocking. As I told you, we had a change in policy, which nobody was anticipating. And then even before this market correction, I got to tell you, this is the part that's going to make you feel a little bit better. This, I guess if there's any silver lining in this entire story, is that if you look at historical standards and valuations of stock market and how the equity markets are valued, you can see that by historical standards, we're not overpriced. The key measure that a lot of people look at to see how va- how fairly valued the stock market is valued at shows that the um, the S and P five hundred, a good, uh, the average for where the price to earnings ratio has been since nineteen thirty five is somewhere around fifteen point eight. And when I'm talking about price to earnings, what I'm talking about is stock prices divided by the corporate earnings of the companies. And that's, like I said, a good historical number is 15.8. That's kind of the average that's out there is considered a good valuation. Well, even when markets hit their peak, as of the peak as of July 20th, the price-to-earnings ratio only hit 18.3. So sure, it's a little above average, but it's by no means overvalued because we saw, if you take this back into perspective of what happened back in 2000, we had price-to-earning rate, r- ratios and multiples topping out for the S&P 500 of around 34, dial- 34. So you can see how if you take the price and divide it by earnings, people back in 2000, we must have all been insane. We were definitely drunk on something to think that um, paying $34 a share compared to the average of 15 was reasonable. And, you know, and a lot of times that was back when we were having the talks that we were in a brand new paradigm. You know, this was the corporate earnings because of the Internet and everything that was going on with technology. This is just the way we were going to have to be. That's why you had companies like the that web grocery, 
um, the web grocery company that um, I can't even remember the name of um, the grocery company, but it had a market capitalization that was bigger than Kroger, Publix, and all the other big public grocery companies out there. This was the type of insane stuff that led to the markets adjusting and, and had the big technology pop that we had back in 2000, 2001, 2002, which was that bear market. These days, I will tell you, there's been some things put into effect to help us calm down. So we've got the fact that historically we're not super overvalued if we're trying to make you feel better about what happened this past summer and looking back and trying to figure out where we can, you know, figure out what do we take this information and turn it into something good for us that we can turn it into an opportunity. You should know there's a few things that we've got. First of all, the mystery about what the Federal Reserve is going to do it's kind of been answered because they kind of jumped to action and said that they would do whatever it was going to do to, to make sure the economy as well as the markets were safe. They've shown us they're willing to step up to the plate. Also, we have better forecasting, better technology to, to, to predict data and, and to look at all the economic factors that are out there. And then there's more trading controls, too. You know, you didn't see – we've got these curbs that kick in now whenever you have big jumps in the market that will kick in and slow down so we don't have huge disastrous drops in the stock markets all at once. And these positive events kind of help us level this out. And then I always say – you need to look at this from the, the standpoint as long as the, the, the risk that you have in your portfolio truly reflects where you are in life. You've got to think about how many years you have until retirement, how much you've saved, you know, what your goals are in the future, when you want to retire, these type of things as well as it doesn't have to just be retirement. It's other financial goals you might have too. And if you came through this period of time, this, this summer turmoil, and now you've seen the market recovered right at the end of the third quarter, you get a do-over. And I think it's a good opportunity because we had the markets get beat up and then we had a nice recovery at the end of the third quarter and we haven't had a bad fourth quarter, start of the fourth quarter so far. This is what I call a do-over. If you don't have an asset allocation that truly reflects your risk level and has too many things that don't, maybe too much risk, this is the time to adjust right now. Now, we're about to have to go to commercial break, but when we come back, I'm going to tell you how to put this, take in the perspective of this summer sell-off and how that relates to our former Federal Reserve chairman. That's Alan Greenspan. He's been doing some interviews. And um, I know this is a few weeks old, but I think, you know, like I said, this is financial leftovers. I think it's good to go back and look at some of the interviews he's done with, for instance, Newsweek is who I'm going to be talking about. And then I've got other information about retirement tips, the 13 retirement myths that I found out there on Money, CNN Money um, article that I'm going to link on the website, money-guy.com. And then I've got some information on the millionaires. So come back and join me. We'll be right back after these commercials. This is Brian, the Money Guy. Brian the Money Guy Preston here, and if you love free stuff, I have the offer for you. If you enjoy the information that I share on the Money Guy Show, then you'll love my print newsletter, The Wealth Report. The Wealth Report is the quarterly newsletter that I send my wealth management clients, and I'm making it available to you for the affordable price of $29 a year. You can sign up at the Money Guy website, money-guy.com. 
Here's an incredible offer in the month of October. I will go ahead and send you a complimentary copy of the third quarter wealth report. This allows you to get a free quarter of great financial information since your subscription is listed in the system as beginning in the fourth quarter. The third quarter wealth report covers the weak U.S. dollar, avoiding IRA rollover mistakes, update on college savings plans, and eight ways to save on life insurance. So what do you have to lose? You probably spend more than $29 on coffee each month. So take me up on this incredible offer and sign up today at the Money Guy website. Once again, that is money-guy.com. Money-guy.com. Join now. And we're back after our first break. And I want to thank you guys for joining us. This is um, this is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I am a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist, which means that I uh, I do. I'm a CPA that does financial planning, and by day I am a fee-only wealth manager. And, and you know, as a hobby, I do this radio show on Business Radio 1160, as well as out there on the World Wide Web. And you might be listening to me on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. But just coming back to the topic at hand, we talked before the break about putting the summer stock sell-off into perspective, and, and how the valuations, how some of the things going on out there globally in the political world as well as the credit marketplace, have caused some of the, this turbulence and volatility that we've had over the last few months. Well, I think now we can also take into account an interview that I've seen in some of the, the perspective of very influential people and see what their thoughts are. And there was an interview um, in Newsweek back from September 24, 2007, that I'm going to link on the website because I, I downloaded this from the MSNBC, MSNBC website um, called A Candid Conversation with Greenspan. And he's the, like I said, the retired um, Federal Reserve chairman who, took, who was there right before Ben Bernanke, and he was there for multiple presidents. So he, he is not a partisan player. He's just a guy given his perspective, and you can get a lot of insight from listening to somebody who's been through so much of a market as well as giving you their insight on where they think things are going in the future. And, and I'm not going to read the whole article, but I think there's a lot to be learned from this. And the first question that I'm going to highlight on talks about says, when you became federal chairman back in 1987, if someone had said that in the next 20 years we're going to have virtually uninterrupted economic growth, would you have said that is a banker's fantasy? And Greenspan responded that he said, I would have said it was a psychiatric inadequacy. I do realize how extraordinary, how unusual this period has been. The very nature of its discontinuity from history is what forced me to reach beyond the usual economic variables to seek an explanation of what it's all about. And as you know, I concluded that it was the result of a, a, a seminal geopolitical event, the end of the Cold War. So Alan Greenspan is thinking that a lot of the dramatic changes that have allowed us to have this huge bear, uh, you know, bull market run that we've had really in the, you know, from 87 to, to now, I mean, we did have a, a correction in the bear market of 2000, 2001, 2002, but it's been pretty good times, you know, even the last three or four years. If you haven't made money in the last three or four years, then you might want to go reassess your your what you're doing with your asset allocation and your investments because it's actually been pretty good out there. He, he went on to say um, – um, this is why he said that the coal, end of the Cold War was so important. He said, on one side of the Iron Curtain were essentially central planned collectivist societies based on the principle that collective activity is what produces wealth, and therefore there is no individual rights to property. 
So this is where he's setting up the platform to show you why he thinks this is such a groundbreaking thing that this happened. And then he said on the other side, so on one side we got the communists with their collective being, and then on the other side um, were capitalist societies built around the market system with free trade and individual property rights. The classic case was East Germany versus West Germany, which were two economies coming from the same history, culture, and language. So this is a great, you know, hypothesis that we can go back and review and see. And, and, and this is what Greenspan says. He says, the conventional wisdom was that East Germany's economy was three-fourths the size of West Germany's, and that the Soviet Union, while having major shortfalls, was a formidable economic power. Then the Berlin Wall came down, and the economic ruin beyond the Iron Curtain was utterly unexpected and unimaginable. Central planning did not work in the Soviet Union, and the standard of living in East Germany was not 75% of West Germany, as, as most people anticipated, but somewhere between a third and 40%. That impact on the rest of the world was dramatic. So you see, I, I think that's pretty dramatic, too, and I don't mean to – I know some of this stuff is pretty boring, but this is – we're talking about the world we all live in. If you think about it, you can – I'm old enough. I'm still a young guy, but I'm old enough to know – how scary it was, you know, even in the 80s where you had Reagan and, and you know, in the Soviet Union and we kind of had the whole arms race thing and, and we broke them. I mean, we showed that this system did not work. And so the Newsweek came out and asked, how specifically has this changed the world so dramatically? And then Greenspan came back and he said, answered, he said, the evidence of the power of the marketplace versus central planning as exposed to, in, in, to what happened in Europe led to an extraordinary rise in foreign direct investment in those countries. In China, for instance, we all know what's going on in China, you know, just from listening to previous podcasts I've done, it says, in China, for instance, foreign direct investment, which had been $4 billion in 1991. By 2006, that number was over $70 billion a year. You know, that's incredible. If you think about in 1991... China only had $4 billion being invested in it. And as of end of 2006, $70 billion. That is just a incredible change. You know, that's almost approaching 20-fold. It's getting very close to 20-fold. And that's the 2006 number. I bet if we take into account 2007, it probably does hit that. So you can see how... The world of capitalism is creeping beyond just the borders of the West. And I think that's what Greenspan is talking about, all this candid growth. Now, let me give you the other side. This is the part that I think is where the, the most important insight in this entire article that I'm going to link on the website is. And that is, they asked him, there's a bunch of other questions in here. I'm not going to get into all those. But they asked him, the interviewer asked him, he says, how does the housing market look now? And this is where I think we can really get some insight. He says, Sales of homes are falling even though, even though housing sti- starts are falling sharply. That's putting downward pressure on prices. And here's the key part. There's an act too to all this. As prices go down, the net worth of individuals goes down, and their propensity to spend goes down as well. That is the most important sentence in this entire article when I was reading this thing because this is the, the truth of the matter. Let me digest this and um, dissect it a little bit for you. Most people don't realize that two-thirds of our economy is driven by consumer spending. That is where a lot of companies you know, are counting on you, the consumer, to continue to go out there and buy 
birthday gifts, holiday gifts, random gifts, just shopping in general, buying new cars, new homes, new clothing, anything and everything. We need you to buy so the economic engine keeps going. That's just the way the system works. Two-thirds of the economy driven by consumer you know, spending. So if we've got everybody, their biggest net worth builder for the Joe Public, John Q. Joe Q. Public, whatever you want to call him, um, the biggest wealth builder over the last few years really has been your home equity because, let's face it, pretty much anywhere in the country, the United States, some places you know were hotter than other places, but you had great growth going on with your investment of your house. It was going up every year, and you could go get an appraisal that said the value of your home went up. You could go get a home equity line or do whatever you want or refinance your house, and you had immediate access to that money. Well, that has changed. You know, with everything that's happened with this credit crunch, with the subprime lending and, you know, and lenders now being much tighter, going back to a more traditional, you've got to show me you've got good credit, you've got to show me you've got capital put into this project, it's, it's cut off the free flow of cash to lend. So with that being the case, I think there's a lot of people out there that are saying, man, I need to tighten up my belt. I can't spend as much as we did last year because my net worth is not going up. And when that happens, that's the part that scares me. That's the part that makes me wonder what's going to happen to this economy in two years when consumer spending slows down to a trickle. And I hope I'm wrong about this, but I'm just giving you the insight of what I think Greenspan was going in there and talking about. He's not going to say uh, we're headed for a recession. And I don't want to use that R word either because I'm not so sure we're headed for a recession either. But he, you know, because he got, he got his hand bitten on that um, quite a few months ago, you know, he, one of the, he just, he said in passing, um, that America could be in a recession, you know, and it's turned out it didn't happen. But when that happened, the markets went, acted very widely. And I think Greenspan realized very quickly, he had to be careful how he chose his words when he was out there in the public arena, because he was no longer the federal reserve chairman. And, um, he, he had some of these things happen. So he's not going to come out now and say, that we're headed for some trouble, but he did say there's an act too. That's the key part, is that I do get concerned what happens when people realize that their net worth is not going up in the home equity side anymore. And the other thing is if anybody's tied to the re- the real estate marketplace, man, it is some lean times. Now, I, I saw an article, it had, you know, property valuations and how they're impacted throughout the entire country. It was kind of a Uh, a a chart that showed, you know, just percentages by, you know, different geographic areas. And actually down here in the southeast where we are, it showed that houses actually appreciate 1%. But I find that hard to believe uh, based upon the graph I saw because I've been talking to a lot of mortgage brokers. I've been talking to a lot of builders. There are a lot of them. I mean, the, the builders in my area are going under. It's not just that times are lean. They're actually going under down in this part of the country. And it, it is sad. I know a lot of people who are connected to the real estate industry, where it's closing attorneys or whatever, that are downsizing their departments because it's so tight in the, in the, in the real estate marketplace. And then you have mortgage brokers. I talk to mortgage brokers all the time that their incomes are down 50 to 70%. That's not revenue. That's their income is down 50 to 70% because of everything that's going on. So you can see how you've got to take what's going on serious here. It doesn't mean that you go to cash. I don't want you to become a market timer by any means. And I've had some people send me emails going, Brian, you told me, you know, stock, you know, oil and stuff is at a high. Maybe you want to hold off till the beginning of the year or something. Isn't that market timing? 
I don't necessarily think so. I think even though I think we look at the fundamental financial situation and we allocate according to where we see opportunities. That's not a market timing. A market timing thing is where you're playing trends, where you see a stock that has gone up, you know, for ten days straight, and you think you can play that momentum and and, and ride it down. Or, or write it up, I should say, or write it down if you think it's overvalued at that point. That's that's what I call, uh, you know, timing the market. But when you look at the fundamentals of valuations, price to earnings, historic trends, you know, of where it traded on, on the normal level based upon, you know, allocations and so forth, that's fundamental investing. So I don't think that that's really market timing when you're basically over-allocating where you see opportunities and, and underweighting where you think things have gotten a little overvalued. I think that's just smart. There's a reason you start pulling out of real estate a few years ago when it was because it was getting overvalued and you were just trimming back some of the earnings to keep that allocation intact. Also, small cap stocks, they've gone up considerably. If you compare the how much the return of where small cap stocks were in 2000 to where they are now, they're up tremendously. Whereas you go look at large company stocks, and I'm talking about United States companies. That's large companies or ten, you know, companies that are ten billion dollars and greater. That's your GE, your Home Depots, and so forth. They haven't appreciated that much over where they were in 2000, if they've even reached where they were. Whereas you go look at small company stocks, which are companies less than a billion dollars in size or two billion in size, depending upon who you see, how Morningstar, whoever else classifies the different asset classes. They are, they are at higher places than they've ever been in history. So these are the things you've got to think about is because you don't want to ride, buy into something that's at the top of the scale, meaning that you're buying in on the top and don't have much room to go, and you're looking at the value, you're not looking, paying attention to the fundamental valuations, and, and you're going to get left holding the bag. So we're not market timers by any means. I'm just saying use common sense and allocate based upon your risk, and don't get out of the market just because of this. Now, if you are getting two, three, four, five years towards retirement date, um, you're still not going to go completely to cash, but you do need to make sure that you're not 100% cash if you're about to retire. This is one of the things when we come back from this commercial break coming up, I'm going to give you the 13 myths of retirement. And one of the myths of, uh, of retirement is that you don't need to worry about market fluctuations. That is true if you're in your 30s and you've got 30 years still to work in the workplace, workplace and you know invest your money. But if you're, if you're you know, in, in your early 60s, about to retire, yeah, you need to pay attention to what you're allocated in. It needs to reflect your risk, how close you are to retirement, and everything else that's going on in your financial world. Don't let anybody tell you differently. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'm going to go over for the last segment these 13 myths on retirement. And then if we have time, I think we will. I'm going to try to squeeze all this in. Um, We're going to talk about the ranks of millionaires skyrocketing across the the globe. So Thanks for joining me for Financial Leftovers today as I'm recovering from the Securities and Exchange Commission coming in to visit me this morning, and I hope you're enjoying the Money Guy Show because this is your host. I am your host, Brian Preston, and um, go check out our website if you want to go pull show notes and, and everything else that's out there. You can go to money-guy.com if you want to go look at all this stuff as well as sign up for our free newsletter on the show notes as well as our paid subscription newsletter which is the wealth report so i'll be right back after this commercial break this is brian your host brian preston one half of preston and cleveland wealth management i'm now a fee-only planner i didn't like 
the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job, educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. Well, I'm back for the last segment, and we're talking about today, this is financial leftovers. And the reason it's financial leftovers is we're cleaning out the fridge of what we had laying around here um, at the Money Guy Show of articles and so forth that um, we have not had a chance to go over. And the reason we're doing that is because, as I've already told you guys, I had a visit from the Securities and Exchange Commission this morning. And um, this was just seemed like the appropriate thing. You know, it's, it's just like when your family didn't have time to cook you a big dinner, you ate leftovers. We're doing the same thing. But I don't think any quality has been lost. Matter of fact, I think you guys probably like that we're jumping right into the topics because we're short on time because I've got a lot to cover in a small period here. So let's let's jump right in. Coming back from the break, we're talking about the 13 retirement myths. And I went out and found this article. I'm going to link it on our website. That's money-guy.com if you want to go out there and look at this article that I've got the link for. It's called The 13 Retirement Myths, and this was provided by Money on CNNMoney.com. And the number one myth, what I'm going to do is the way I'm going to set this up is I'm going to to read the myths to you. Ones that I want to give a lot of insight or, or read a little bit, I'll tell you. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of go through here and, and paraphrase what I think is important. The first myth, but we will go through all 13, but the first myth you need a big income to have a big nest egg. Um, I think wealth is relative, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time telling you this, but I think wealth is relative. Somebody who's, who makes $30,000 a year, if you can build up your investments by saving diligently over a number of years, can be very happy with Social Security as well as having savings of you know five to $600,000. And you can do that just by saving that 15 to 20% of your gross wages. So, And they gave some examples in the story that fits that exactly. There's somebody here who um, did not make a ton of money uh, a year, but if they were able to, to build up a nest egg of $800,000 as well as build 529 college savings accounts for their two children, um, you know, just by, by being diligent and saving exactly what they needed to and not wasting a lot of money through excess, buying things that you really don't need. you got to pay yourself first and invest. The number two myth out there is you can't get rich from a 401k. And I think a lot of people believe that because they are new concepts. 401ks have not been around a long time, and a lot of people have not done a great job with managing their 401ks. So there's a lot of people that think they just can't get rich with a 401k. But I'm going to read this that came from this article. It says, when Tim O'Frill graduated from college, his brother gave him sage advice. Put as much as you can in your 401k and don't touch it. O'Frill took the, that to heart, saving 15% of his salary until he reached the IRS max of $15,500 in 2007. After 13 years of steady contributions, O'Frill, a contract negotiator for a manufacturing company, 
in Thousand Oaks, California, has a 401k worth more than $200,000. And it sounds like if this guy started doing this right out of college, you're, you're 22, 23 when you come out of college, and he's been doing this for 13 years, this guy's probably 35 years of age. To have um, in the $200,000 of assets at 35 years of age, you can see with the compounding interest, he's going to be quite wealthy and on easy street when, when it comes to retirement. It's going to be hard for him to screw things up when you've got that much of a head start out there. The third myth that they talk about in this article, everyone has debt. I do think that there's a culture in America, and, and I tell you guys, I'm not your typical financial um, radio host that's out there you know, telling you, you know, that you, debt's evil and everything else, because I think you know, debt has its place. But I do think that this show goes beyond common sense and the fact that if you can't sp- you know, spend less than you make, you're never going to be financially independent. That's why I say this goes beyond common sense because that's common sense. There's a lot of talk shows out there just telling you, you know, to cut down the debt, cut down the debt. That's common sense. Duh. Not everyone has debt. If you're going to go buy a car, if you can't pay cash for it, I'd prefer for you to pay cash because it's a depreciating asset. But if you can't pay cash, by God, you better be able to pay that thing off in less than three years. I don't care if you finance it for 48 months. It better be paid off in less than three years, preferably around two years. That's what I always try to shoot for because it's a depreciating asset. And you, you don't, I'm always shocked at how many people are underwater in, in assets like that. You don't have to go run up and do the fake lifestyle of having all the credit card debt. If you use credit cards, pay them off monthly. Sure, use them for the rewards and everything else that's out there, the, the travel insurance that comes with using credit cards. But pay those bad boys off every month so you don't get stuck in that, you know, in, that, in that heavy, heavy weight that comes with carrying a ton of consumer debt as well as other debts on your shoulders. Number four myth, a million dollars will cover you. I've even talked about that. And a lot of people think that as long as they save a million dollars, they're going to be fine for retirement. And that's not necessarily the case. I see this all the time where people will come in to see me who make great incomes. They might make over $200,000, $300,000 a year. And then I go look at their, you know, how much they've stockpiled and put away for, for their future nest egg. And it's not much money. You know, it's only, you know, three or $400,000, which, yeah, is a decent sum of money. But when you make three or $400,000 a year, that's not enough. You've got to, if you're used to, accustomed to a lifestyle of making, let's just say, let's make this simpler and just go to an example of $100,000. That's what they use in the example in this article. If you make $100,000 and you think when you retire, you're not cutting your lifestyle one bit. You're going, you, you made 100000 when you're out there working. You want to make $100,000 or spend $100,000 a year once you retire. You're probably going to get somewhere around twenty from um, you know Social Security. You've still got to come up with, because you don't have as big of a tax impact, you've still got to come up with about $60,000 of after-tax money from your savings. And, and to do that, you've got to have... Over one and a half million dollars just to, to create that lifestyle that you had making a hundred thousand dollars a year. So, if you, if you live off two hundred thousand dollars a year, you can see that number gets much much bigger. So you got to think about this thing. There's also the myth, and this was a big one that happened, you know, a few years ago. There was even some books written called "Boomers Will Crash the Market When They All Retire" because we know we have this aging population, and there's a lot of people that were nervous that the baby boomers are going to crash the stock market. This is not completely true either. And let me tell you why. I'm going to read this part directly out, and then I'll give you my thoughts. It says, here's why this is not true. Stock ownership is extremely concentrated among the very highest income brackets. Those in the top 10% hold 
68% of financial assets, according to a 2006 study by the Government Accountability Office, that's the GAO. Um, these wealthy investors are unlikely to be so strapped for cash that they have to sell their shares in a hurry. Instead, says George Walper, co-author of Get Rich, Stay Rich, Pass It On, most affluent families intend to preserve assets for their heirs. Moreover, many baby boomers plan to stay in the workforce longer than an earlier generation did, even into retirement, which would further reduce the need to sell shares abruptly. So in other words, just because you hit retirement age doesn't mean, oh, got to flip that switch. You know, I've got a diversified portfolio, but now that I'm in retirement, time to go buy a ton of CDs and, and just go completely to cash. That doesn't happen. You, you diversify and sure, you take more risk out of your portfolio, but by no means are you going strictly to cash. So I don't think, and I agree with this article, baby boomers are not going to bust the markets just because they're retiring. The sixth myth about retirement, without a pension, you're doomed. Now I have done quite a few shows. I've even done that retirement show called Retirement in Crisis. And I'm trying to scare you guys into actually saving on your own because you have a tremendous opportunity out there. If you talk about, sure, the older generations before the baby boomers had full pensions that covered and provided a lot of their retirement. And now we don't have that. We've got that. Those pensions have been replaced by 401ks. But there's also a tremendous opportunity. If you go save the 15 to 20 percent, you actually can end up with a great deal more money than a traditional pension would have provided for you. So you can make it without a pension. You just got to be diligent and very disciplined about saving for the future. Don't squander your retirement by not doing the things you need to be doing right now. Number seven myth, social social security, social, God, I can't say, it's just, I think it's my propensity not to like social security. Social security won't be there when you retire. Now, I disagree a little bit with this article because um, I'm going to read you this stat that I've used on this show already. And it says, in just 10 years, the cost of Social Security benefits will outstrip the amounts that workers pay into the system, according to government studies. And they're just saying that, sure, you know, Social Security has got some financial trouble, but it's going to be there with them when you retire. I tell young workers, now, sure, if you're if you're getting close to retirement, meaning that you're probably, you know, in your 50s and beyond, Social Security is going to be fine for you. But for people who are in their 30s, 20s, you know, I know there's a lot of young listeners out there. I don't even take into account Social Security really when you're looking at some of those plans because you're too young to know really what the financial fate of Social Security is. If this article's correct and it's out there for you, great. That's gravy on your retirement plan. But if it's not, you've got a plan for that too. So eh, that is one area that I have a little bit of a disagreement with this article. I've got to move on because we've still got a few myths and I've got some other things to talk about. Number eight, your house can finance retirement. I don't agree with this either. A lot of people think that they can just use their house to fund their, their retirement shortfall. doesn't usually work out that way because you need a place to live. And most of you love being able to have the family come visit you at the holidays, and your place is the central meeting point. Nobody ever wants to sell their house. And reverse mortgages, you know, sure, they can provide some income, but they um, they, they they leave a bad deal for your heirs. It's better to work out other, you know, creative ways um, to fund that. And then as well as, you know, 
home equity is not easy to access. You're not going to just go do a home equity line to, to, for retirement expenses because, you know, you're going to build the stress of having additional debt. So your house is, is a hard asset to use. Sure, you can downsize if you're disciplined enough to do that, but most people don't want to get into that. Number nine, you're too old to start saving. Never a bad time to start saving for retirement. I'm going to use an example they provide in this article. It says you might be surprised at how quickly your work can show results. Say you're a 50-year-old earning a hundred thousand dollars a year with only $150,000 saved. Research by T. Rowe Price shows that if you put the max in your 401k, including catch-up contributions because you're over 50, and a 50% match, plus invest another 5% outside the plan, that's about 20% if you're doing the math, by the way, you'll have $1.5 million by age 65, assuming you earn an average of 8% a year. That's very reasonable. With that, a true retirement will no longer be a myth at all. So that's that's something, it's never a bad time to save. Number 10, we're getting close. Short-term market swings don't matter. I've already covered this, but I'll just touch on it briefly. They do matter if you're getting close to retirement. You've got to make sure that your asset allocation reflects your risk level. You don't want to have 100% stock when you're getting right close to retirement because you have one bad market downturn like we had in 2000 to 2002 you're done. It's going to cut you really badly and your retirement is not going to be the same. Now if you're in your 30s, your 20s, hiccups. Don't let the hiccups cause you to lose focus of your long-term goals. Invest based upon your risk tolerance. Number 11, myth. Top priority is the kids' college. This was our last Financial chaos topic is college planning. Remember, it's nothing wrong with saving for college for your children if you're taking care of yourself first. But if you're not, don't do it. Remember, they can go get student loans. They can go get grants and apply for financial aid. For retirement, you cannot. So make sure you focus on retirement. Number 12, decent savings plans equal retirement early. And in this one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. It's just saying people who think they're going to retire in their early 50s might have trouble because of the high cost of health care as well as how hard it is to get into retirement assets and other things. So it might not be as easy to retire in your 50s as you think. And the last myth, you're bound to mess up your 401k. And all this says is last year's Pension Protection Act gave employers a green light to make more respons- take on more responsibility for their workers' retirement savings. Now an increasing number of plans will give you investment advice or even account management. And I think that's true. That's a positive thing. Now, last article. I've got to hurry up because I've only got about a minute before I have to start winding down the show. Ranks of millionaires skyrocketing, skyrocketing across the globe. And this is according to the World Wealth Report 2007 that was put out by Merrill Lynch as well as another research group. And it says 9.5 million people will now have a net worth of at least $1 million, excluding their residents. So this does not include their residents in this. That's an 8.3% increase more than the number they had last year. And that puts the aggregate wealth of the world's millionaires to $37.2 trillion. That's three times the U.S. gross domestic product. That's pretty incredible. The the countries that had the biggest growth, Singapore grew by 21.2%, India 20%, Indonesia 18%, Russia 15.5%, um, South Korea, 14% in the United States, 92 by, by the gauge, if you're just looking at number of people, North America is the wealthiest continent with 11.3% of the world's millionaires. So you can see pretty exciting stuff. Um, I'm running out of time. Hope you enjoyed the Money Guys show today. I am your host, Brian Preston. Go check out our website, money-guy.com. Until next time, I hope that you're blessed with many opportunities and you make good financial decisions. I will talk to you next week. This is Brian Preston, your host of The Money Guy Show. See you next week.
The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.